Welcome to Adapt Peace Building. Hello and welcome to the Adapt Peace Building podcast. In today's episode, we'll have a conversation on findings from a community-driven peace building process in north of Myanmar and share some insights from related work in Mali and Colombia. So with us, we have uh, Professor Danny Burns from the Institute of Development Studies and Stephen Gray, Director of ADAPT Peacebuilding. So congratulations to both of you. You have just published a paper on the systemic action research project that you embarked on in Myanmar in 2015 in the Peacebuilding Journal. This is super interesting work. And before digging into all of the depths and all of the findings that you have detailed in the paper, I'd love to hear a little bit more on, about the context of the peacebuilding project uh, that you launched in Myanmar and uh, also how it relates to the national peace process that w- it was uh, going on. Um, Steve, could you please uh, tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Well, you know, it's really nice to be talking to both of you about this in particular because as the listeners may not be aware, it was the three of us that actually started working together on this uh, as early as 2013, but really picking up pace in 2015. And at that time in Myanmar, there was a a lot of hope around a a national peace process that was going to deal with the the root causes of the civil war between many different ethnic armed groups and the Myanmar military. And we were very interested to try and use an approach at that time that would enable some of the conflict-affected communities in the country to have a little bit of a voice in that process. Uh, Communities and civil society has been very marginalized traditionally from the peace process in Myanmar. The country was opening up. There's all these black zones where there's no NGO access and there's lots of issues for people that are not necessarily getting discussed or addressed in the country's democracy process or the peace process. So we'd met Danny Uh, who's going to talk more about systemic action research methodology. And it really seemed like a different approach to traditional development that could work on some of these marginalized issues with people that that weren't getting a say. Uh, So that's how it all started. That's how it all started. Danny, do you want to tell us a little bit about the systemic action research methodology? Yeah, I mean, it's something that I've been working on for a long time. I mean, action research itself has got a long history. Um, People have been working in small groups to change processes, but with the idea that you learn as much from action as you learn from analysis. So it's this uh, cycle which um, connects action with reflection. And many people have been doing this for a long time. I think what I've been interested in over the last 10 to 15 years is how do you do that at scale? And how do you do that in a way which... um, deeply respects the participatory process and doesn't dilute it, but can actually have an impact at a a society level rather than just a group level or an organizational level. So, I mean, I had done quite a lot of this work in various different contexts, working with more marginalized communities. We hadn't done it before in uh, a conflict zone. So a lot of the dialogue that the three of us had in those early stages was about how would you do that? Because what we're trying to do is to operationalize um, a bottom-up peace-building process. And of course, there's lots of discussion about that. And there's been many, many critiques over the years of elite peace-building processes and their failures. One of the weaknesses, I think, of that critique has been there have not been very many models of how to actually do it, except for perhaps very small and localized examples, really interesting examples of how you know, small uh, community-based processes have made local change. But at a larger scale, not really. So that's that was our base, really. But it was quite experimental in that sense at that time. I think we took very tentative steps. It was indeed, right? And maybe, Steve, do you want to set a little bit more of the of the scene of what happened at the start? How how did um, we practically go ahead with the project and how did we then bring in what uh, Danny was just talking about, the systemic action research process? Right, well, I think we learned a few lessons at the start around relationships and trust. Uh, it's really critical in peace building in general that you prioritize understanding and, and building trust with those that you're gonna work with What we had discovered, I think, particularly in Myanmar, where there was not a deep history of 
internationals working directly with some of the populations from within side the country uh, that we had to spend a lot of time over years of really building up trust. And what we started doing was uh, working with different community-based organizations that, you know, they're not really like national civil societies that that might have a voice or a role in the capital city of the country, but really based in the, the north of Myanmar, and particularly with one group on the Chinese border, uh, our partner called uh, Rainier, the Relief Action Network for IDPs and Refugees, who we still work with to this day. So we, we did a lot of work with them. Uh, they are based in a very remote part of the country that NGOs don't have access to, but we managed to start communicating and working together and, and slowly started working with some other community-based organizations and civil society organizations and, and other parts of the country. And I think they really took to the idea of of starting the process with collecting narratives of, of people, which which I think Danny will explain as part of the systemic action research methodology. You, you made an important point, I think, which might be worth elaborating on a little bit, which was that our first um, overtures, if you like, into this region were essentially rejected after a, a period of time where we tried to build relationships. And, and actually, I think we learned quite a lot about the fact that, you know, if you're um, engaging in a space where there has been conflict for 50 years, then mm. why would anybody trust us to mm. engage with them in a process without quite a long period of dialogue and uh, confidence building and you know mutual uh, exchange of what we were trying to do and, and so on. And I think we went in too quickly and tried to get action too fast. So mm. it really was a case of learning from that and then building new relationships with new groups and taking more time to prepare the process. So I think that was an important lesson, but maybe say something about the, the process itself. So our, our process is, is really built on collecting life story narratives, which means you're asking people to tell their own personal histories. So clearly it's bounded in some way because it's about their, their history in this place and it's about their history in the context of conflict. But what we're doing, which is different to an interview, is we're asking a prompt question which elicits them to talk in more detail about the things that are important to them. Whereas in an interview, you've got a set of questions that you as a researcher want to know about. You know, Tell me about your education. Tell me about health. Tell me about you know, when you uh, face conflict in this area and what happens. Whatever it is, it doesn't matter. If the researcher constructs the questions, the researcher is constructing the agenda. Mm. And what we wanted to do was to start with people's agenda. If they tell their story, they tell us what's important to them. And then we can start to understand um, what's going on. And in that process, we have a particular way of training the core groups, in this case it was Ronia, to ask uh, supplementary questions which allow their narratives to be deepened and it allows them to, um, to bring out the causes and the consequences of the things that they've talked about, which starts to get us into a sort of a systemic picture. Yeah. And then, then we go through a, a process of bringing all of those people together. So sometimes it's the people that have told the stories, sometimes it's the people that have asked the stories, sometimes it's both to do a collective analysis of the stories. Um, so we bring people together into a, a workshop and it could be 20, 30, 40 people. Uh, they read through the stories together, they analyze the stories, and then we build a big collective system map which shows the relationships between the critical issues that have emerged. So it's not just about this happened, it's about this was happened, but it was caused by these many things. And it led to these many things, and some of these are interconnected. So in the in the jargon of systems thinking, there are feedback loops, which essentially just means that you know some of the later consequences also cause again a repeated cycle, which occurs over and over again, creates a pattern. So once people can see all of that in a big map, then they can start to think about okay, where might we take action? 
So from the story analysis, we generate action research groups. The groups prioritize the critical issues that they want to engage with. And in this case, um, the three critical issues that they identified were the relationship of drugs to the conflict, questions about resettlement. You know, many people had been displaced. They're in refugee camps. Some were dispersed across the northern parts of the country. Where are they going to go? Are they going to stay in the refugee camps? Are they going to cross in, into China? Are they going to go back to the villages? Are they going to create new villages? There's a whole sort of debate about that whole process. And the third one was about relationships between host communities and the camps. And Steve, you might want to talk about some of the results of those groups. Um, but just to say before you move on, so that's the action research process. Mm. So they're now in action research groups. And that basically means that they meet regularly over a period of maybe a year or however long it is. And they generate an ongoing analysis and they generate action that they want to take multiple actions, but in relationship to those issues. They collect evidence in relationship to those specific issues. They generate theories about what change could happen and why, and then they take action. So Steve, yeah. tell, tell us more about yeah, and, and maybe and, and maybe Steve, you can also tell us a little bit how the three issues that Danny mentioned that emerged, how would that maybe be different from a normal process and how would that lead to different kind of, um, yeah, issues? and Yeah, I, I think there's a number of ways in which it's different than a normal development process and how they arrived at those three issues of, of drug addiction or drug abuse. IDP and host community relations and the right of return for IDPs. Some people might say, well, did you just do a needs assessment or was this just a, a form of consultation? And I think one of the critical differences with systemic action research is that the people that are collecting information about the lived experience of their community, fellow community members or the narratives, the people that are doing the analysis of those narratives. The people that are making decisions about what we're gonna focus on are the community members themselves. So in a traditional needs assessment or consultation, there's someone that's coming in to create a space for consultation or to write down needs. And as Danny said, they're framing it. They're framing the importance sometimes themselves. And then they're taking that information away. They're making decisions about it. And then they're coming back with program designs. So this is fundamentally different in that it comes out of the community themselves. So one of the implications is that those three themes that the action research groups then went on to, to work on and achieve great results in, we didn't know in advance what those topics would be. So, you know, straight away you get a sense. And nor that, did know, the donors. And no. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And that's one of the interesting uh, facets of this work is that it is uncertain what you're going to be doing. So you need to have some sense from a donor that they're willing to explore those spaces. And And Danny talked a little bit about how you might have to frame your inquiry so that you're not just working on anything at all. But if so the like drugs issue was an interesting example, wasn't it? It was like we had to have a quite complex uh, discussion with the donor about why drugs was important to conflict. And we had to show them and take them through the system maps that had been developed by the community to show exactly how the community saw that the drugs were linked to conflict. Because their their initial response was, you know, we're not talking about drugs, we're talking about conflict. Precisely. Yeah. And Steve, I wonder if you can develop a little bit, because the, the narratives also shifted from the local communities when they started to talk about drugs. There was one picture that they had in mind before what the problem was, and the systemic action research actually then empowered them. Can you tell us about that? Absolutely. So, I mean, drugs is a, is a really important example for a number of reasons. You know, this is the, the golden triangle. Uh, Myanmar, Burma is the second largest producer of heroin in the world. It's now in the top three producers of methamphetamine. And the addiction rates among youth in this part of the world are around 30%. There's not reliable estimates on it. There's not good numbers at all, but it's very, very high. Uh, many people will say in Kachin communities, Kachin state in the north of Myanmar, that this is killing more of our youth than the war. 
However, it is almost a non-issue in the peace process. It's almost a non-issue for the Myanmar government. It's there's a there's a huge gulf between the problem and the mechanisms, the political mechanisms to try and address this. So some donors might push back and say, well, why are you working on drugs? Or because it's a, a hugely important issue. Now, when you start to talk to people about it, um, as the community researchers in, did in Kachin, you would often hear a quite simple narrative about what causes drug problems. And that was that for the Kachin ethnic minority, they see the drug abuse that is ravaging their communities as part of a genocidal strategy on behalf of the Burmese to wipe them out. So they conflate, you know, the Myanmar military with the Burmese ethnic group and say, this is just another, you know, um, weapon in their arsenal to try and wipe us out. And one challenge with a narrative like that, that's relatively simplistic, is that it, it directs the uh, blame or the causality for this problem in an adversary which is almost faceless and generic, and it doesn't provide you with much of an option to do anything about it. So it's quite disempowering from that perspective. Now, now Danny spoke about the collection of narratives and how they are analyzed using systems mapping. Well, what that does is it brings in an incredible richness of detail, and it shows in people's own lived experiences, drug addicts, recovering drug users, uh, the families of uh, people that might have been involved in the um, police or judicial system, that there are actually many different causes of this problem, many different ways in which causes interact in people's own lives in, in very detailed ways to lead to drug abuse and the problems that, that come with it. And the thing about looking at it through that perspective is that there are actually many points within a community where something positive can be done about it. So one example that comes out in the paper is that the community researchers started mapping the role of their own prison system and contributing to the problem. So people would be incarcerated for using drugs rather than have some kind of you know rehabilitation approach. And in the prisons, it tended to reinforce their drug use because of the availability of drugs and alcohol in the prisons. And then they would come out and they would be shunned by society, which promoted even more drug use and a sense of isolation. And so from looking at those more detailed links to how drugs were used in their own communities, they said, well, what can we do about actually promoting acceptance of former drug users rather than shunning them? But continuing to welcome them into the community to try and reduce that sense of dislocation that was that was leading to relapse. So they came up with a number of strategies like this that never would have been possible if you just stuck to that general narrative that someone else was trying to undermine them. And they also thought about, well, how do we actually create change in our communities? So uh, we know that the young people are particularly vulnerable and we need to find some way of communicating with them. So they talked about how to build a curriculum to engage with young people in the uh, schools and the colleges. And they did that by bringing together a, a, a genuinely multi-stakeholder group of people into the action research process. So they had drug users, they had ex-drug users, they had police, they had you know, people who were connected to the, uh, the KIO. They had people who were social workers, you know, pharmacists, all sorts of people who had some piece of the bigger jigsaw. They also had, you know, young people who might be potentially recipients of this information and knowledge. So rather than sort of add a set of experts producing a set of knowledge which was completely ignored, um, they were able to create something that actually people would engage with. And they collaboratively produced a curriculum which specifically spoke to the issues of drugs, which then was widely distributed. So drugs being one of the the key findings, and mine risk education you also mentioned. How did uh, the communities work with with mine risk education, Steve? Yeah, so this is a really interesting one. I mean, Danny mentioned that initially one of the themes that emerged from the narratives and from the mapping 
was about the right of return for refugees. And, you know, there's a population of 100,000 uh, IDPs, internally displaced people in that part of the country, and some over the border refugees in China, and they want to go home. You know, it's been years that they've been away from their villages. Now, quite early on in the action research process, when they had formed groups around this theme and they're meeting to talk about it, they started talking with the local authorities, the KIO, the Kachin Independence Organization, and realized that due to the security situation and particularly the presence of, of landmines and unexploded ordinance, it wouldn't be possible to return at that time. And so they needed to pivot to well, how can we reduce harm for people that are going to do reconnaissance of their local areas uh, when there's so many landmines and, and bombs that are still in the ground. And so they settled on the idea of mine rescue education. And so that's interesting for a couple of reasons. It's interesting because this is one of the most heavily contaminated areas for landmines in the world. Uh, it's a non-government controlled area and there'd never been mine risk education at all at that time. So that means, you know, just informing people about how to be careful when you're in a, a heavily contaminated area, you know, what to do, who to inform, how to avoid harm. There was a, a lot of harm that was happening to people. So it's significant first in that respect. It's also significant because if this was a traditional program, which had said, we're going to research and deliver upon IDP return, they would have been stuck at that point. But because this approach, like some other methodologies, has a capacity for adaptation, they could pivot and they could change not just the uh, way that they were working, but actually what they were trying to do based upon what they were learning about the context. Yeah, and, and that's great. And that really shifted um, the agency. And that's a big, uh, the big question in this project. Like, How do you shift the agency to, to the people who are actually living in the situation? Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, I, I have a couple of things to say. Um, I think Danny might as well. I, I feel that this is one of the critical findings of, of interest from this paper. Um, we talk about it sometimes as agency, which can have a different meaning in, in other sociological literature. Um, but what we're really talking about is when you have a peace building program, who is actually getting to make the decisions in it? Who decides, you know, um, who's going to be included, what the themes or content that they're going to focus on, how it's going to be implemented, when it's going to be implemented, because in, in development generally and, and peace building also, there is a lot of talk of local ownership. It's really seen as an imperative. This must be a locally owned program. But that local ownership can just mean that a program is designed by an NGO or uh, it's of interest to a donor and they would like something done at this time and in this way. And it's kind of given to a local partner to then implement. And so they actually don't have much agency or much power in that process. So what systemic action research encourages is actually enabling the people that are affected directly by these issues to have a direct role in making decisions about what's going to be addressed, how and when. And I've, I think that's fascinating because of what it opens up in terms of increased participation and increased impact um, but Danny, you have a long experience with, with this stuff, so maybe you have more to add in there. Yeah, and Danny also mentioned how the whole process, the whole collection process provides that, that agency. Yeah, I mean, I think it's not just peace building organizations, but the, the whole development sector talks about local ownership. It usually doesn't mean ownership. It means local. I mean, it usually means that someone in the center is engaged with some you know, easy to access local access and giving them an agenda to work with, which maybe they agree with and maybe they don't. Ownership really means that um, people believe in what's happening and they care about it and they're going to fight for it. And the only way that happens is by actually processing it themselves. So the collective analysis is a really important part of this because basically if they've done the analysis and they understand what they think is wrong and what they think needs to happen, then they'll fight for the change. Um, if somebody comes in from outside and provides a report and says, here's our conflict analysis or here's our whatever it is, 
A, most people aren't going to read it. B, most people aren't going to believe it. And C, the chances of it actually sparking any sort of emotion or passion or um, motivation for change is very, very limited indeed. So the first step, I think, is a collective analysis where things are put into a melting pot and contested and talked through and taken apart and put back together again by the people that are actually involved. And then the second stage is, in effect, doing the same thing, that we learn in action, that we we build our commitment to something, we build our ownership of something by taking action, by seeing what happens, uh, by being inspired by the impact of what happens. That leads to something else. By doing something, we open up new doors that we didn't see in the in the first place. And so that process builds ownership. And ownership is critical to it's critical to sustainability of any sort of agreement that might emerge at a more strategic level. Because yeah. if the people don't believe in what's being pushed down, then conflict will reemerge. Conflict isn't happening in a sort of conceptual or institutional or metaphorical sphere. Conflict is happening by real, you know, between real people. Um, on the ground, real people are affected, real people are taking action against other real people. And so those real people have to actually buy into any of the changes that are going to happen. Otherwise, any sort of peace agreement is going to fall apart. And I think that's been very much the history of a lot of the context that you guys have worked in and was very much the history of this particular locality. Yeah. No, and, and that's very interesting. And, and it brings a um, connection when you talk about the local ownership. It also brings this idea of how do we connect that then to the national process, to the global process? Do we connect these? What, what do you think about that? I mean, that comes out a lot in the paper. You discuss these strategic connections. I think that's the big challenge. I think in some ways, you know, we know something about, and in a sense, there's been decades of work on this, about national level processes and all of the sorts of ingredients that go into some of those sorts of dialogues. And increasingly, we know quite a lot about how to do good participatory work on the ground. So, you know, this is an example, but there's lots of others that are emerging. What I think we know less about is how to link those processes from the ground to a national level. So I think what we're interested in, and we'll talk about this later in in connection to other programs that are following, is how do you build a learning architecture which connects the learning from one group to the next, which connects the learning from the ground up to the strategic and connects it to key actors of influence who can also generate change and also build ownership. But I think we're really at the early stages of this. So, you know, when different players... Uh, in the peace building field talk about things like, for example, Interpeace talks about a track six process, you know, which is all about the sort of the relationship between track one, track two, and track three actors from this, you know, from the elites to the sort of formal institutions on on the ground to civil society. I think there's a a lot of um, aspiration there Mm. and not a lot of really good model practice. And that's not about entities. That's about pretty much everybody that's articulating a different model of this. Mm. And we're, I think, just experimenting our way into how to do it. Yeah, this is really one of the key questions, I think. Um, And, you know, the paper, it talks a lot about bottom-up peace building, and it talks a lot about vertical integration. And the reason for that was that there was an explicit intent with this work to situate the local level peace building within the context of a national peace process that wasn't working very well and to try and find ways of raising the concerns and aspirations to feed into that national level political dialogue, uh, but also to take action at a local level. So while waiting for elites to reach a bargain that would end the civil war, you could actually have some improvements locally, some learning locally, uh, some action locally. And I think one of the critiques that we were responding to and, and having that kind of approach is that participation, which is supported through a national level peace process, is often 
um, spaces for participation, uh, controls over who can or cannot participate that are designed by elites and internationals. So that's very different than allowing locals themselves to have a say over what will be talked about, who will be able to talk. And Danny's completely right. There is no real formula to do this. And I think we would argue that it shouldn't be formulaic in itself. So the bottom-up approach is saying, well, we're, we're going to allow people in those places that are affected by conflict to actually start to design that for themselves. Now, the critique of that is, well, you can have all these local level actions and then they're just never going to go anywhere and they're not going to link to anything. So how do you find that that kind of sweet spot or that middle ground between allowing locals to have a say about how it's going to happen, but still trying to formalize it some way in the context of a national change process, which means like laws and policies and things like that. So there are a couple of examples that come out of the paper of the experience in Myanmar that I think are quite interesting, um, and they were certainly not designed. I mean, one is in relation to the mine risk education that we talked about before. So, you know, as we mentioned, this had never happened in this part of the country before, a very heavily mined area. When the national authority in that location, which is a, an armed group, a non-state actor called the Kachin Independence Organization, when they saw what was happening, with support from an international NGO that also became involved in this process at the request of locals, they so much saw the value in what was being done that they increased the um, support by it by a factor of seven, so that you know seven times as many people could receive minor education. So it ended up being 7,000 people in the most affected area. Um, and that is an example of making a vertical connection to an authority that was not brought about by a pre-planned uh, dialogue or public consultation. It's something that emerged from the process itself. Uh, another example is that the action research groups that were taking place got larger and larger th so that they actually became community meetings of hundreds of people, out of which emerged a Kachin National Youth Network which became an actor that had a mandate to speak to national level authorities about the position and aspirations of youth with respect to the peace process. So that type of forum um, or mechanism, again, wasn't something that was planned, but something that emerged. The, the third one that I think is really interesting because we all struggle to define what is a good local to national linkage. And I think there are many different types and we should be open to different types. But another one is a certain type of person. Uh, and this was really, really interesting. Uh, and the program manager for this work was a, a unique type of person and that he could speak five languages. Uh, he had a lot of experience working with uh, directly with communities as a humanitarian, also working with international NGOs in the United Nations. Also, he had family members that were linked to some of the non-state actors as well as on the government side. So he could um, literally and figuratively speak a lot of different languages and move between groups uh, that a lot of other go-betweens wouldn't be able to do with legitimacy. And this meant critically that he could harmonize interests because not surprisingly, there are different interests at play for a military elite or elite political stakeholder than a community. And you might see that about you know, IDP return, for example, or you might see it when hundreds of, of community members start meeting and demanding that their rights be respected or, or that drug abuse gets talked about. It might create friction. So a key role that he played was to kind of do like shuttle diplomacy between communities and between elites to explain what was happening, to massage, to access more resources, and to make sure that this was conflict sensitive. So yeah, there are a lot of different types of linkages, and I, I don't know that that there's really a prescription for it. No, I mean, I just wonder if it's worth just amplifying the second one a little bit and just unpacking it, because I think that was interesting. If we go back to the stories in the map, what emerged was a tension between some of the youth in the um, IDP camps and some of the local communities. And so the first analysis of the action research group was to bring together some of those young people into dialogue. 
And that dialogue was so successful that it spawned a whole set of other dialogues amongst young people across Kachin. And that, in a sense, then built into the Kachin um, National Youth Network. And that then created a, a sort of more strategic link to the KIO and into sort of wider national peace processes. But the starting point was a very micro-level analysis of conflict. You know, and, and the very first uh, version of that was very specific. It was actually about conflict over uh, firewood that was being collected um, and the disputes between the two groups about who had the rights to actually take that wood. So it was very, very, very micro level, but it built into something. And in a way that links us back to, you know, complexity theory, which um, essentially it tells us that very often very small micro initiatives can grow into something much bigger. And it's a model of scaling, which is very different to saying, okay, we need 500 of this and 10,000 of that. And when we see that sort of model of scaling in action, it's often a huge amount of resources that leads to nothing. Whereas in this sort of process, you can seed something and you can see how it ripples out and grows. And that was a really good example. So Danny, maybe you could tell us a little bit about the process in, in Mali and how that connects to strategic linkages and, and vertical and horizontal connections. For me personally, this was a bit of a journey. Because uh, we started this process in Myanmar with you guys. And there was a huge amount of learning that came out of that. And a lot of that learning then got built on in a process that I supported with colleagues in relationship to modern slavery in Nepal and, and India. So we basically took the elements that we'd been building on in, in Myanmar and we scaled them again so that instead of collecting 50 to 100 stories in each locality, we collected 300. And we built those into multiple action research groups. So in some of the localities, there were like um, 10 action research groups. And we refined the process so that with each uh, map that was created and each action research group that was created, there was an explicit phase of evidence gathering around the critical issue that they were working on. So there were a whole set of innovations. And then having taken that to scale and then learned even more about the process, we started having a conversation with Humanity United, who were opening up some work at the time, actually, in Kenya, Zimbabwe, and Mali. But the focus has really been on Mali since then. Um, to build a, a, a process like that in Mali. So we're working in four localities. We haven't decided the fourth yet, but there's supposed to be quite diverse types of uh, conflict situation. So we're working in Kangabar, which really is not in the heart of the Malian conflict now, um, on issues around prevention and resilience. We're working in, in Jenne and in uh, Mop TV, which are both right in the center of the conflict zone. And then the fourth area may actually be a border conflict issue. So we're looking at a set of issues. Now, in each of those localities, there are 10 action research groups, which have all, in Kangabar, we've already done the mapping process and the action groups are already set up. Um, and that's now starting in, in Jenny and Moptiville. But at the same time, we're also creating a national level process so that there will be action research groups at the center, which pick up the themes that are uh, emerging from the ground. And there'll be action research groups at the center, which generate national level themes, mm. which might also be informed by some of the knowledge that's coming from the ground. So we're trying to think about sort of, if you like, learning horizontally between the different action research groups, but learning vertically up into a national level process, which can then connect to any more formal processes which are happening in the country. Yeah, no, and it's really interesting. And what you're mentioning now, it makes me think of, of our listeners and that there might be listeners that practically want to elaborate or, or contribute and, and do this kind of work. And one of the things, so going into a little bit more practical thoughts and, and insights and, and lessons from your experiences, both in, in Myanmar, Mali, and, and what's to come in, in Myanmar and in Colombia. My first thought is then, 
what is the role of outsiders? What should the role of outsiders even be? And can it be useful? Yeah, I mean, maybe I could start with that. And Steve, you might want to add to that. But I think um, in some ways, uh, we have to be obviously careful. I think one of the things, if we've got a basic principle that the process needs to be driven and led by local communities, then we need to be clear about our role as outsiders. Now, obviously, there's a funding context and you know, money coming from a donor can be helpful, even though in this particular example, the money was actually minimal considering the outcomes that emerged. And for us as facilitators or external facilitators of the process, I think our role is essentially a technical support role. So from IDS and from where I've been working over the last years, we've spent, you know, two decades working on participatory methodologies. Now that provides a resource which local communities can use. So we can support them in the technical side of that process. Uh, that's very different to the content. So we'll engage with them on that. Uh, methodological side. We'll talk about how that might work. We'll tweak it together and evolve it and sort of change it to be suitable for local circumstances. We'll support them and say, for example, they might collect stories and then we might pilot them and then we would collectively critique them and then they would then go and collect uh, new stories and so on. So it's really a, te a technical support role. As soon as we start getting into a managerial or directing role, then we completely break the philosophy of what we're trying to do. Yeah, and I'd, I'd just reinforce that because there can be a tendency if you're doing bottom-up peace building or you're talking about uh, empowerment and agency to say, well, it's all about locals and there's no role for outsiders. And I think one of the lessons is it's about understanding that the combination of insider and outsider competencies can produce that something that is innovative and new and different and can scale and work in a, in a context where local only or outsider only efforts might not succeed. And at the same time, I think uh, we've got to realize that in this context, at least, I wouldn't speak for all peace building contexts, but an outsider can be someone that is just from another city, like mm. that is from, you know, 10 kilometers away or a capital city or as, you know, as a, an urban, relatively wealthy person. And, and something that we've found in the next iteration of systemic action research, which is, is still happening now, is we've actually worked quite intentionally to network all of the local community members that we're working with, with people from outside their state that have competencies and can offer something that is useful. So in this time of COVID, which is a whole another conversation about what you can do for participatory processes, there has been support from others outside via Zoom, obviously, to um, provide teaching or training on advocacy or on online campaigning or online participation strategies. And those competencies were not held by insiders. So it's about trying to find that, that combination uh, that enables innovation. And I, I think that the other point is that in doing so, being mindful of the distribution of power or the distribution of agency, because we're not saying that there's no role for outsiders, but just that all the power should not be vested in outsiders. And we need to shift that balance a bit more local. Yeah, and in a, so I think if we take the idea that insider and outsider or diversity more generally generates innovation, that can be really important for any sort of action research process because it is about trying to break the pattern of what has led to the replication of the same patterns over and over again. And the only way we can do that is by introducing something new. So the question is, where does the new come from? So there's process innovations, but there's also innovations in relationship to the actual issues themselves. But I think all this reminds me that we should be very clear that I mean we we are talking about the process that we we're engaged in, but actually the process was driven and created by Rania and all of the people that were around Rania. So it's their process. And in a sense, we're talking about it in the English language in order to be able to communicate something uh, 
to potentially other peace builders and others that might be interested, but it's not our program. So Danny, how would you uh, suggest or what are the findings in terms of how we can support and work with local organizations and, and networks in leading this kind of work? Yeah, I mean, I think in some ways this connects to a bigger narrative about having longer term engagements and longer term funding and longer term support for processes. So we don't just go in, like find an organization, do a project and then disappear. It's really about saying into the long term, peace building is a long term process. How do you build uh, the strength, the capacities of local organizations to do this sort of work? You know, and how do they build it for themselves and how do they draw in new people to strengthen those sorts of networks? So, you know, in the Myanmar context, uh, the Rania network is a good example of that, that have built competencies over time, have learned alongside us about where they want to take that and have just taken it and run with it. So they become the hub of the process. Um, in later processes that we've been working on in Mali, We've been working with an organization called IMRAP, which is essentially now an action research uh, focused organization, which is working on peace building in Mali, composed entirely of Malians who want to work in this way. And they were initially supported by Interpeace. And, you know, that evolving relationship is, is also one which is transitioning from one of high levels of technical support towards an organization that is now pretty much completely autonomous and is forming and will form a strong hub within the country to take on this sort of participatory evidence-based change work. So I think it's really important with these processes that there is an organization or a network of organizations that can hold the space. If internationals come from outside and parachute in and do a bit of participatory work and then come out and then do another bit and then come out, the chances of it actually having traction mm. into a, a long-term sustainable change, I think, is pretty limited. Mm. And are, are there any other conditions or insights that are coming out from the work that you have been doing that is necessary for the participatory research to, to take place or to work well? I would say, um, I'll pass over to you in a second, Steve, but I would say that one of the things that we need to think carefully about is that participatory processes can, uh, if not thought through carefully, if you like, take the easy pathways. You know, so we go to the local NGO actors on the grounds that are always talking to the donors or the local community groups that are highly networked. Or we speak to the men because they're the sort of... Um, de facto leaders in the organizations. But in order to create a, a innovation, B, a sort of a deeply sustainable peace, we need to be talking to everybody in those communities. We need to be talking to men and women and young people and old people and disabled people and people who are, you know, had certain types of experiences of conflict and others who've had different types of experiences, refugees and host communities stakeholders in the system so it could be when we we're talking about drugs we were talking about you know what are the drug rehabilitation units who are the people that are in there who are the drug users and the drug addicts and the ex-drug users and so on you know a participatory process which is going to deliver a sustainable change and break those patterns of conflict has to engage all of those people and that's a lot, again, it's a longer process and it's a harder process, but it's critical to making this work. Steve, what, what are your thoughts? I, I would just add on to that, that one of the imperatives for participatory work in, in the peace building space is that there is a, a channel or a means by which that participation can cannot just be managed in terms of the right amount of diversity and some of the tensions that might come up in, in conflict zones. But how do you actually use the energy that's generated, the action, the learning, and try to sustain some kind of positive change by linking it to something that is more national? 
or it might be uh, incorporated in a, a new law or an agreement or something that's going to you know hold the test of time and and this is why I'm so excited about the the work that's going to start in Colombia next year which we can talk more about is that we will have systemic action research happening in the context of a dialogue mechanism established under the country's 2016 peace agreement that's mandated to implement some of its provisions so it is not just action that is happening in the in the context of of a need but we don't know where it's going to go it's actually trying to help implement the the peace process and it's through mechanisms that are connected all the way up to the president's office so we're able to see a channel through which we can connect some of that local agency and action to national level change like we've, we've been talking about I think the other thing that's interesting about both the emerging Mali process and the Colombia process is that we're also paying much more attention to evaluation and learning yeah. in both of those two processes. So in the Myanmar process that we've described, we collected a lot of evidence. We talked to a lot of people about the stories of change that they had witnessed, but we didn't systematically document it in the ways that we're systematically documenting it in Mali and Colombia. So in a sense, the next iteration will be at a more strategic level, much more evidence-based. So people should be able to, to come back and ask us, you know, in a year's time. So you guys were saying how amazing agency <laughs> is and you're saying how amazing, you know, having the right type of connections are, you know, show us the evidence. So we want to be in a position to say, you know, more so than than the paper that's come out in peace building, but actually by accompanying these processes and looking at some of these questions, what can we see about what kind of outcomes were generated for people on the ground? Exactly. So if we took the Myanmar process, we can see that these youth forums were created out of that process. There's a really obvious and transparent sort of uh, set of things that happened that we know happened. But we don't really know the detail of exactly how they happened. How did the group, you know, what happened in the group, which made the next step possible? What was the actual link between this successful youth process that was looking at a particular process in a particular set of villages in a particular IDP camp? What was it that created the spreads to the next group? And how did that open out? So... The next phase of evaluation in both of these two projects is really trying to understand the mechanisms. How do participatory processes build ownership? How do they create action which ripples out? You know, what are the conditions under which you get that ripple as opposed to, yeah, that was just a really interesting thing that happened in this place? Mm. Um, understanding that mechanism and why that mechanism is different to a traditional consultative process or some other sort of intervention process is sort of the heart of a lot of the um, evaluation work that we want to do into the next phase of this bigger journey. Yeah, and we, we very lightly touched upon the role of, of donors and the donors that can support this kind of, um, say, open-ended process where the people themselves are taking action and how important it is to have flexible donors that are able to do that. But then also the important point that you made, Danny is that actually quite a lot can be done with quite limited resources because actually the agency, again, is not so much that it's dependent on huge donor money to then create those projects, but the projects are made from within the community with some of the means that may already exist there. I mean, sometimes, as we saw, there are very creative um, projects that came out of the Myanmar work where the communities themselves started to fix or change or do things immediately without not really any funding at all. <laughs> and also, I mean, I'm quite interested in that because there's a sort of a slightly different model. So, you know, for example, in this process, we probably over both phases had a core funding of maybe a few hundred thousand dollars over what's that, maybe three or four years in total. There are other processes that we've been working on, which are sort of much more like $4 million or $10 million. And it'd be interesting to see actually what difference the money makes, or if it makes yeah. a difference, or what is the infrastructure that's needed to support the process? What's the technical support? 
do we need staff teams to help support this? So for example, in, in a large program that I'm coordinating uh, called Clarissa, which is focusing on worst forms of child labor, we've actually built country teams. And there's country teams of facilitators and documenters and evaluation people and safeguarding people and mail people. And, you know, it's a very different model, um, which provides a, a strong infrastructural support to the process. And it would be interesting to see what differences that produces, because I don't know yet. Yeah. The, the Myanmar process was a very free-flowing process, which was rooted in the community organization, and it just took off and it ripples. That could actually be a better model. Or maybe we need to say in order to really go to scale, you need to have a level of infrastructure that we didn't have in that process. And I don't think we know the answers to that yet. Yeah, it's it's fair to say that with the Mali and Colombia work, we're looking at variations on that theme and, and we're gathering more evidence to to help to answer that infrastructure question. I think, you know, from the perspective of of donors, it's a very interesting time to be thinking about donors' interest in this type of work. COVID is saying a lot or or pushing a lot about the idea of being flexible to changing contexts, you know, and so here is a methodology that does enable adaptation. At the same time, there's a lot of uh, risk of aversion that is emerging in the in the donor world, which doesn't speak to a, a lot of desire for innovation. And I think what this gets at is the need to demonstrate how if you're using an approach like this, which really gives a lot of, of the agency to locals and enables adaptation is how are you going to be accountable in that kind of context, you know, and donors might have concerns that, well, you're doing an, adap- an adaptive approach, anything could happen here and they could run with anything. So you need ways to show that the work is good work, it's getting results and it's it's an effective use of the funding and also that there is some form of accountability and we might not have enough time to go into that now, but I do think with some of the mal that's being innovated here, the monitoring, evaluation and learning, we can show why changes are being made and how it's better to implement a strategy that's been learned during the process rather than some kind of pre-designed plan. So I think it's a bit of a watch that space and you know we'll be putting out more to try and um, demonstrate how and under what conditions this works well. And it is very much, a, you know, a, it's a new thing for donors, I think, to really embrace the idea of um, adaption not being marginal to a process, but actually being fundamental to the process so they actually literally don't know what's going to happen a year and a half or two years into the program. One of the key things I think there is to integrate them uh, very closely, if possible, into the design thinking as you go along. So with our Clarissa program, we've been funded by uh, UKFCDO and the key people within the funding organization have been co-generating the design changes as we go along. That's been quite fundamental to the success because it's all transparent and people can see the logic for the, for the shifts that emerge over time. Now, what we're hoping that because some of these are very large programs, both the Humanity United funded Mali program and this large uh, Worst Forms of Child Labour program, that that sort of maybe catalyzes um, something bigger in terms of the understanding that much more emergent processes which are rooted in the community can actually, in these sorts of complex conditions, generate better results than your traditional planned model that's monitored by a log frame. Yeah. So thank you. You've shared a lot of really rich information from these exciting and and fascinating processes um, that are very much still taking place and ongoing in the communities where where they were started. And I really recommend reading the paper in the Peace Building Journal. And there there's also some even more detail around the creative activities that were launched and really getting into some of the nitty gritty on both how to do it, but also what emerged from the process. So I really recommend reading that. Um, where would you say, Steve, for future directions, for Watch This Space, how should uh, interested listeners um, continue to follow you or you or Danny and, and collaborate with this kind of work or learn more? 
So for everybody listening, wherever you heard this podcast, there should be a link somewhere to see the paper itself about the work in Myanmar. Uh, there, I also encourage you to check out uh, adaptpeacebuilding.org. You can see more about what we're doing in, in Myanmar and Colombia and elsewhere. Sign up for our newsletter. Um, okay. We're always trying to um, reach our audience in creative ways. And we really encourage conversation around this. So wherever you happen to, to see this podcast link, you should be able to make a comment. We do read those comments and we have been discussing, because this work is ongoing, having regular conversations about this in which we would pick up on some of that commentary. So please be bold, be provocative and, and leave something for us to think about. So thank you so much, uh, Danny and Steve, for this really interesting conversation. It's been a real pleasure to have you on the podcast and to, to dig deeper into this fascinating uh, work. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Visit us at adaptpeacebuilding.org slash blog.